to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Um, Guys, I'm really looking forward to sharing my conversation with my special guest in today's episode. Um, In this episode, we talk all about breed myths and how they can harm our dogs. And we want to dispel some of these myths so that you can feel empowered, even if you have a quote unquote stubborn breed. Guys, there's no stubborn dogs. I really am using that in quotations. Um, All dogs learn under the same learning principles and you can utilize um, positive reinforcement, least intrusive, minimally aversive training techniques to every breed with great, great success. So um, let me tell you about my special guest. So Bree Blakeman is a certified professional dog trainer and she owns and runs Noble Wolf Dog Training in Portland, Oregon. Um, She is a husky mom. So I felt like she was the perfect guest to dispel some of these myths with. So I really hope you like this episode. Guys, if you like this episode, do me a favor, share it with your friends. Um, Knowledge is pair power and sharing is caring. Um, Enjoy this conversation. I'm sure you are well aware of CBD for dogs. I give Tiva and Waylon daily CBD just to promote their overall health. And we use VetCS. VetCS is a veterinary based hemp therapy company and they make products for not only dogs, but they also make cat and horse products too. Their products are lab analyzed and they will give you unmatched customer service. We love Vet, vet CS, and we are so excited to share this wonderful product with our listeners. If you are interested in learning more about Vet CS, you can head over to their website, vetcs.com, and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your first purchase. Our Brie is with me today, and we are going to talk all about breed myths and breed stereotypes and how that can negatively impact our relationships with our dogs and how that oftentimes leads people to believe that punishment is the only way. So Bree, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you for having me. I've been so excited to do this. It's great to finally finally be here. I know, right? Sometimes it's hard to make schedules align, but we finally made it happen, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, I invited Bree because she is a husky owner. And I know that huskies suffer from a lot of breed stereotypes. And I think it's important to recognize that, you know, all dogs are individuals and that all dogs can learn skills, right? Um, And it doesn't require any different training based on the breed. So, Brie, let's talk about some of the stereotypes and myths that, like, you hear specifically about your breed. Yes, so many. Um, I would say the biggest one is um, issues around trainability. People will say that they're they're really a, a challenge to train. Mostly, they, they don't even say that. They'll just say they're stubborn, right? You've see, probably seen those memes with a picture of a husky that says, huskies have 18 muscles in each ear to ignore you with. And they're funny, and I can laugh at that and, and love it because there's some, uh, it feels as though there's some truth to that. Um, but as someone who's worked with uh, various different huskies. They are individuals. Some are more challenging to train than others. Um, 
but they're certainly not stubborn and uh, we could get into a whole podcast on just labels there. Um, but so stubborn is one, um, can never be off leash, which I will support to some degree as well. Um, they are bred to run. They love to run. So um, we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, to, to say all, all dogs never can be off leash no matter what is, I would say, a stereotype, right? We have to yeah. the dog that's in front of us. Um, what else? Uh, overly friendly, um, hyperactive, um, insatiable when it comes to exercise. Uh, yeah, I would say those are some of them, but the primary one really just being that they're untrainable, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, right. And I, (laughs) so brilliant. Well, and I think, you know, I think that another breed that falls into a lot of the stereotypes that we just talked about would be sight hounds. Right. Sure. Yeah. They're very similar in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we're talking greyhounds, whippets, stuff like that. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's hard because this conversation, we obviously want to talk about dispelling stereotypes, but there's also a lot of truth in the fact that like there are more precautions you have to take with the dog who is more likely to chase things who is more likely to run for the sake of running right so like there's really it's this balancing act of recognizing that like we have to set owners up for success but we also need them to know that like nothing nothing is impossible, right? Like maybe it's not going to be exactly like your Husky is off leash always and forever, but maybe we get to a point where like, you know, your Husky or your sight hound gets to drag a long leash or, you know, I think that there's just, there's a lot of possibilities and it doesn't have to be this black and white that like Huskies, sight hounds, you know, fill in the blank of breed that they can't ever be off leash. And I think that the problem that we run into with breed stereotypes isn't necessarily so much um, with someone who's owning the said breed, right? It, it's, it's when it comes to um, people uh, that are new to that breed making snap judgments, right, about, about who that dog is and what they're capable of, because... Um, a stereotype is just a, it, it is a cognitive shortcut and it allows your brain to make those um, snap judgments based on either like visible characteristics about a dog, like blocky headed dogs, right? Yeah. Um, or even gender, breed, or age. And um, so, so that's the difference to me between like a stereotype and what is like a measured, um, condition that that pertains to a specific individual right and that's what we need to be looking at more is is you know behavior is defined by what an animal does in certain conditions that can be measured um and they're not concepts right yeah concepts don't um cause behavior (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure well and i think you know for all you wonderful um dog owners out there that are listening that are not pet professionals, you're not dog owners. I think it's really important to recognize and look at specific behaviors that your dog is actually displaying or not displaying, 
right? Because you have to look at the measurable stuff that your dog is doing or not doing. And that needs to be what's informing your training sessions, not these stereotypes that you think like, oh, well, I own a sight hound, so I can never, ever let them off leash. Well, that is maybe not the truth, right? Is it more difficult to train a recall on a dog who has prey drive, who is more likely to run? Yes, right? Like that's undeniable. It is more challenging, but it's not impossible. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I like, you know, um, I'm always, you know, referring back to Susan Friedman and and reading um, her her writings and um, just this uh, concept of functional assessment, right? Um, Being that what that means is the the focus is on what we most need to know, which means the observable behavior in in that dog. And if we're leaning towards those stereotypes, like you said, um, we can fall subject to what we call stereotype threat, right? And stereotype threat, um, really, as it pertains to dogs, means that when you hear a specific dog isn't supposed to be good, or a breed perhaps isn't supposed to be good at something, you actually underperform, which is the part that makes me so frustrated when I'm trying to talk to people who are considering e-collar training their their Siberians, right? Or people who already have uh, trained their dogs in that way. I've been kicked off so many breeds, <laughs> breed specific like Facebook groups for kind of debunking that myth and that stereotype that you must train a dog or train train a Siberian with with an e collar and that that is a seatbelt and the only way to ensure um, a recall. And to me, that just means that whoever is doing that lacks knowledge um, about training for one, lacks skill, Um, and they're they're falling subject to that stereotype threat. They are actually unconsciously underperforming. They are not trying at a certain point with the recall. They say, I tried everything, right? Which I know I've worked with a variety of different Huskies, some of which are really quite easy to train uh, the recall, train recall with, and others, my own personal pup, it took me two years to get her to be reliable. And now she's more reliable than, than a lot of um, dogs who have the stereotype of being good off leash, like labs. Right? <laughs> right. The recall is stronger, you know? So uh, people will say, well, you just got lucky you know, with that dog, what a unique husky. And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. Don't even get me started with that. She was a pain in my ass. Right. Well, (laughs) I have to say, yeah, they don't get to undervalue the work that you systematically put in to get where you are. Right. Like it wasn't by accident. (laughs) Right. And I think that that's really important, right. That um, you know, I know for sure, like on the Instagram and the Facebook, it's it's it presents as it's really easy, right? Like, oh, my dogs yeah. are always off leash. Yeah. And guys, I want you to recognize that, like, that is absolutely not the truth. You know, oh. like it's it's not easy, and dogs don't always get to be off leash, right? And I think that 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 plays into the same like misunderstanding that 
challenges and I think can impact negatively impacts the effort we put into with our dogs. Yeah. And that's almost like a stereotype for all dogs. It's like a myth that, that we're still recovering from that, that a good dog is a dog that should just be able to be off leash in any circumstance. Um, and that's really dangerous. So that goes into like, um, what, what, setting realistic expectations as well that are fair for the animal in front of you because sure you could train a dog that some huskies I will always tell people you can work at this I will help you with training recall I cannot guarantee that it will ever be a good idea to have this dog off the leash right but I will help you work towards it and we may get there and we may not and that's real because we bred these dogs to be a certain way. They are genetically predisposed to be running away from their handler as fast as possible, ass towards, towards them, right? <laughs> yeah. For miles and miles and miles without getting fatigued. Like that is, that is true. You can't take that out of them, no matter if you get a puppy or um, spend uh, 10,000 hours training the dog there's always going to be a flight risk, right? So um, part of why my, my little uh, bolter here is so fantastic at recalls because I set the environment up so that she's not going to fail. I'm not going to let her off leash um, when there are deer visibly running through the field, right? Or right, when, right. you know, like when there's, when there's a, a clear um, major challenge, in, in our path. Um, things, however, can happen at any point, but I've really set her up so that even if she were to chase, we have spent time training what that would look like and how, what I do and how she, she does return, you know? Um, but I consider, um, I consider all, all, uh, you know, huskies to be somewhat of a flight risk. And, and if I can train the owner to, to never fully relax in a way to having their dog off leash, right, then they're going to be smart about when and where they allow the dog to be off leash, right? Um, and, and that's just smart. That's just setting the dog up for sex, success. And that's fair, so maybe, yes, you could put an e-collar on a dog and make sure they're not bolting into the middle of the street, but that's not fair. You are getting a dog who loves to run and you're asking them to work against their, their nature and you're not giving them choice in the matter. Um, and you might as well just handcuff them, you know? So I, I think that is inhumane, highly inhumane. Um, so it's about about education and knowing with whatever breed you're working with, what, what certain um, uh, setbacks or challenges might be and setting them up to succeed. Yeah, well, and I've noticed a lot, like especially on Instagram, there's a lot of conversation going around and, and particularly like in the adventure dog space, right? So hiking dogs, mm -hmm. camping dogs, stuff like that. And there's this fallacy, right? That like your dog is only safe if they're wearing an e-collar. Yeah. And guys, you know, 
I'm not trying to say that e-collars don't work. That's a whole nother conversation because they can. But what really matters is what is the negative consequence that is rippling into other aspects of your dog's life, right? And your dog's ability to function in their day-to-day, your dog's ability to participate in training, your dog's ability to trust you as their person, right? And that is, we know definitively the negative and consequences, right? Like guys, you don't have to take our word for it. There's a gigantic body of research and I'll include links to all of this in the show notes. So if you want to do your research, you can, but you know, the negative consequences of using e-collars are undeniable, physical, mental, behavioral, right? Like there's a fallout from that. And I think that it's easy just to present like, oh, my dog always gets to be off leash because like you were saying, yeah. right, the seatbelt, right? The seatbelt, yeah. the quote unquote seatbelt. Well, that is bullshit. Right. And that's what's happening. And just because your dog is wearing an e-collar does not make them safer in the moment by any means. Okay. And the the negative consequences and the negative ripple effects that can come from that are not worth it. Right. They're not not worth it. it. In fact, like the brain chemistry actually physically changes when we use strong averses (laughs) and it never goes back. You can spend a lifetime. You can spend a lifetime of doing behavior modification. It will never return back to normal, which is, is something, it's just not a risk I want to take with, with my dogs. Um, yeah, so. no. And, and, it, and no dog deserves to be treated in such an inhumane way, right? Like, yeah. there's just, you know, and I've shared this a lot on my Instagram stories. So if you guys are on the gram, you know, you can check that out. I know you share a lot of like really yeah. good research and stuff yeah. like that. But Again, you guys, like I need, I want, I want everyone to look deeper than like the few things they saw from like just dog owners on the internet, you yeah, know? And when we go back to the, the, um, behavior, right. Um, should not be the end picture, right. What the dog is just doing, right. Getting into a heel position, coming immediately. That should not be the end picture, um, we need to look at body language, right? So yes, you can definitely get a dog to drop into a perfect heel very quickly with, with an e-collar, right? Um, but what is that dog's body language telling you about how they feel in the moment, what their associations are um, with performing that behavior? And so to me, it comes down to I would rather, I would much rather be smart about where and when I let my dog off leash, put the time in so that our relationship is so strong that that's what's bringing her back to me after she chases a a rabbit, right? Um, And I'm not sacrificing her well-being in order to achieve that, right? And that, that is just a personal choice, which I hope more people, which I think actually more and more people are making as, as we all get, become more educated. Um, yeah. And I think the people listening have made the choice to tune in because they want to do better for their dogs. Right. Which is so brilliant. So we, there's a lot of information and we're really grateful to be able to share this information with you guys because we're living proof, right? We're living proof of what's possible. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's move on to some other uh, breed myths, shall we? <laughs> yes. Let's please do. I want to hear. Okay. Us. 
Yeah. So okay. Exciting. So, you know, so this is, this is pretty near and dear to my heart, obviously, because I am a blocky headed owner, but yes. um, you know, this, this fallacy that all blocky headed dogs are inherently aggressive. Right. And I think this is a tricky one to talk about because there are certainly aggressive blocky headed dogs, yeah. but the shape of their head and their muscular stature is not inherently an indicator that they are going to be aggressive to people, animals, or other dogs, right? Yeah, that's the difference between the stereotype and then what we're actually measuring, what the dog is actually doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we need to have, you know, we need to look at the individual dog. And I think I experienced this a lot, especially with, you know, well-meaning owners who have recently rescued a blocky, a blocky headed dog that yeah. they're more afraid to take their dog certain places because of this stereotype. And I absolutely think that there needs to be management in place. You should be smart about setups and you shouldn't leave things to chance. But I don't think that that means that you should altogether avoid interactions with people or dogs, you know? And I think it's, 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 Dogs don't have stereotypes, you guys. This is all us. This is all on our shoulders. Yeah, it literally is a, a stereotype is a human thing. Right? <laughs> Ultimately. Right. Um, so, yeah. And when it comes to the, the poor blocky-headed dogs, um, that a lot of what people suffer from is what we call contact hypothesis, which is, it's a well-tested idea in social uh, psychology. And it says our attitudes towards other groups of people, usually, right? Um, such of those of different race um, or hair color, whatever, um, are influenced by contact with that group. So that sounds like, you know, people who have pities or blocky headed dogs or huskies may have a particular bias towards them. But it also works in reverse, right? And and the media um, has subjected us to contact hypothesis of the negative sort when it comes to our blocky-headed dogs because it makes sensational news to to put it out there, all the, um, the sad things that have happened with those types of those block uh that stereotype right so so what happens is is as a um society we are bombarded over and over again with um media that tells us to fear these uh types of dogs right um and again stereotypes become self-fulfilling so you're going to only notice the all the, the, the media that says these dogs are bad dogs, or you're only going to notice the ones who are leaning towards that disposition. Um, and the interesting thing about contact hypothesis, it also says that people will generalize to others who look similar in a particular group. So people will maybe see a particular uh, breed, I don't know, a Staffordshire Terrier or something, and then be afraid of a boxer, right? If they had a bad experience with um, that breed as a child, right? Um, And and so that's really important, I think, to recognize when it comes to like breed legislation, right? Because um, if you 
search on the internet, you will find lots of um, attacks by dogs that are not of the blocky headed variety, right? Um, just the other day, I was reading an article about a Siberian Husky who, by the way, they're supposed to be super social, right? Um, like mauled a, a little kid, right? Um, so, and I've worked with a lot of dogs that I would not want to touch, right? Yeah. Who are not of the blocky headed variety. So, um, that's an unfortunate kind of, uh, leaning that I think our society has when it comes to those cute guys. Yeah. Well, and I think that this all circles back to the same thing we keep reiterating is that we need to look at measurable behavior from the individual dog. Yeah. Right. And guys, if you haven't already listened, I did do an episode about breed specific leg- legislation that yeah. pertains a lot to blocky headed dogs, but it pertains to a lot of breed of do- breeds of dogs. So that's a super good Huskies episode. Huskies are often on that list too. Yeah, for sure. They're, right. They're known to be destructive. Right. Yeah. So guys, it, you know, it's, it's just so important to recognize that all of the stereotypes really should be irrelevant. You should be looking at your individual dog and the individual behaviors, and that should be informing your, your training sessions. Well, and I want to touch on something that you brought up too, Bree, is, you know, about negative associations, you know, so for example, my mom was bit by a chihuahua when she was a kid. We Mm -hmm. never had dogs growing up because that emotion stayed with her her whole life. And that is not exclusive to people, right? Like that's, that's also possible in dogs, right? Negative experiences that can carry through their whole lives. And I think that that really circles back to this whole e-collar conversation we're having, right? Is that those negative experiences that they feel, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't need to argue. We know. I know that there's a lot of arguing that e-collars don't hurt, blah, 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 blah. They do, right? It's an unpredictable. Yeah, exactly. It's an unpredictable stimulus and the dog has no control over when these things happen, right? And that is another reason not to use an e-collar. Think about negative experiences that, that happened early in your life that stay with you for decades and decades. Imagine the experiences of our dogs, Right. And what those negative emotions and experiences start to translate to that compromises that completely undermines everything that we preach. Right. (laughs) Like relationship building, positive reinforcement. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, I wanted to touch on some other stereotypes that, um, my, my followers were so kind to give to me. So, and I think that this kind of works on, on the opposite side of what we've been talking Mm. about, but um, a lot of golden retrievers are presumed to be easy, friendly. They could never be aggressive, yeah. right? And yeah. and that's not the truth, right? <laughs> like that's not the truth. We know this. True. We know this in our work, right? Um, any dog can be aggressive. Any dog can be super friendly, right? So just because you think that all goldens are friendly, they aren't. And I think that that puts golden retriever owners in this weird situation, right? Like if you do own a reactive or aggressive dog, people are probably more likely to let their dog come up to your dog because they think like, oh, all goldens are friendly. So guys, that's not the truth. No. <laughs> right? There are some lovely goldens, but they are not all friendly. Um, okay, so here's another one. So Shiba's, Shiba Inu's, stubborn. I hear this a lot. In the Shiba yeah, they Inu. kind of have like the similar kind of stereotypes as the Huskies. Any of the like kind of more Spitz breeds or the Nordic 
kind of. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. Pointy ears, fluffy tails. They really yes. fall into this. <laughs> right. So um, okay. What's another one? Oh, um, oh my God. This is ridiculous. That chocolate labs are crazier than black or yellow labs. <laughs> well, they are. That one I support. No. <laughs> Stereotypes know no bounds, ladies and gentlemen. They know no bounds. Oh, my God. Okay, so um, I think it's worth talking about how all animals learn the same. Yes. Right? Like, huskies don't learn differently than pit bulls. Pit bulls don't learn differently than golden retrievers. Yes. Learning Um, theory is universal across species. Right, exactly. And, you know, there's so much work being done. So I'm really spoiled. You guys know this. My husband works at the Denver Zoo. And the Denver Zoo is really like, I mean, they're top notch in their, their yeah. training and the care of animals. But guys, if they can train tigers and polar bears and grizzly bears to participate in training without force, it's absolutely just insane to me that we think that we need to be using this force on our pet dogs. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, I will say, though, that white tigers are more stubborn than orange tigers. Yeah, for sure. The color. They're way worse. Really makes a big difference. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just having fun. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's so true. It's so true. So, yeah. Yeah. OK, so I want to talk about some creative solutions for training dogs who Huskies. And I got to be honest, you guys, you know, you guys know this, but Waylon, my American Staffordshire Terrier, um, he, his motivation is very much in the environment. Like, I really feel like he's got a lot of probably the same characteristics that a lot of like Siberian owners experience, right? Like his desire to chase and to run and to track is really, really intense. And that definitely challenges some of the situations that we're in, but I also want to empower you guys to use your dog's natural motivation to your advantage. It's the best thing you could do when it comes to training a solid recall. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you guys didn't already listen to the episode about the pre-MAC principle, I definitely think you should go back and listen to that because that's a principle that is going to make life so much easier for you and for your dog. Right. So Brie, can you give us some examples of like in your specific training sessions, how you use something that you could wanted to do to your advantage as a reinforcement? Yeah, absolutely. So when she was rather young, she had some anxiety, um, overstimulation, low frustration, tolerance, and um, uh, which all results in kind of a lack of appetite, right? It inhibits appetite. So um, toys were not super salient, nor was food. And I was trying really hard to create a a pup who could walk with a loose leash, right? And so for her, I, I really tried the food. I tried making myself really fun. I tried movement and I tried, um, different treat delivery systems. And, you know, I really definitely got to teeter between different, um, reinforcers. However, what ended up being the most, um, motivating factor for her walking with the loose leash was one getting to pull. Okay. So I got to use the behavior that I didn't want as the reward for the one I did want. 
Um, so I started with that. She, she learned that it, it is the pre-Mac, right, principle. So she, in order to drag me down the sidewalk, which was just so joyful for her, um, <laughs> she had to um, show me that she could take some steps with a nice loose leash and give me some focus. And then I would go yuka pull and I put it on cue. <clears throat> and so that became our primary training um, motivator or reinforcer was getting to pull. Um, and that worked more than anything else uh, at, uh, you know, adolescent six months of age, right? Um, and then when we were in the forest, she's very environmentally focused. So the opportunity to sniff became a, a major reinforcer for her as well. So walking with a nice loose leash equals I get to have recess, basically. Um, and, and that worked really, really well. Now, this is where it becomes where I would say, yeah, some huskies are going to be more challenging to train than others. The reason we use food as our first go-to is because it's really easy. It's easy to hold. It's easy to deliver. Um, you can get more reps in because the dog swallows the cookie really quickly, right? Whereas with this polling or, or sniffing, I actually have to spend time letting my dog do that, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that takes more time. However, the thing is, even if she would take food, that is not as reinforcing to her as getting to do those two activities. So I'm not making as much uh, progress. So, so initially I spent too much time playing with different types of uh, food rewards, having moderate success, and then finally scrapped it and went, okay, well, let's, let's just use what you actually want to do as your reward. Um, and that was the most effective. Yeah. And guys, it definitely takes creative planning and reinforcing to ensure um, that we're actually rewarding behavior, right? Because not all dogs inherently find food reinforcing. They can in some circumstances, but not all in all circumstances. So, you know, it does take careful planning to use sniffing as reinforcing, to yeah. use pulling as reinforcing. And guys, I think it's really important that if you are struggling to come up with creative reinforcements for your dog, that you reach out and get help from a certified professional trainer, Definitely. right? It's going to make your life so much easier and we can use our knowledge and experience to expedite the learning process for you and the dog. So it doesn't have to feel so overwhelming and frustrated and frustrating because I mean, none of us are immune to frustration, right? No. Bree and I are both trainers. We've both felt frustrated with our dogs and we want to prevent you from getting to the point where you're throwing your ups, your hands up in the air and just saying, fuck it. Right. Because you feel like you've tried everything. Yes. You haven't tried everything. Yeah. I assure you, there are yeah. plenty more modes of training that you can try. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. And on that note with like, um, that, that is one thing that makes me roll my eyes at this point is when people say, yeah, well, my, uh, my dog isn't food motivated. Right. Um, I'm like, uh-huh. And then, and then I talk about getting creative and they're like, well, I've tried everything. And I'm like, no, you haven't. But you haven't actually. Um, but like one, one thing I would do as, as, um, Yuka 
and her environment became a little less novel, right? I started to teach her um, that she actually had to eat a piece of food, take a piece of food in her mouth, swallow it in order to move on, right? And so it became like a kind of like a secondary reinforcer, right? Right. Um, that, that in order to do the sniffs, which is the thing I actually want to do, I have to eat the cookie in order to do that. And I actually was able to train her, right, that to take food outside, which was super hard for her. Um, and so we spent months practicing eating cookies in different environments, right? Um, and it, it, with practice, became reinforcing for her. She was able to, to find that um, appetite out in these stimulating environments. And now uh, she is just turned three, um, and I primarily use food to reinforce her behavior. It did not start that way, right? But you can help a non-food-motivated, quote-unquote, dog um, to, to find food reinforcing, to find toys reinforcing. It's about helping set them up to succeed, right? Um, there is no such thing as a, a non-food-motivated dog. Often it means that um, there is something, some level of stress happening that could be good stress or bad stress right but stress inhibits appetite very much so so we have to kind of pare things back and I think that's one thing that you know I'm so grateful about with working with huskies is they really make you split behaviors so that um, they are very achievable in small chunks because at least with Yuka her frustration tolerance being so low with so many things that we worked on, it was like, okay, your training session is 30 seconds and then you get free time, right? Um, because she can't focus for longer than that without losing her mind for certain things. And then once you take the time and have your own impulse control, right, and choose to, to actually set up your training session to be annoyingly short, yeah. I'm a training <laughs> addict. You have no idea how hard it is for me to go, okay, all you can handle is 30 seconds and that's what we're going to do today for the whole yeah. day. I hate this. Right. But you do it and then you get reinforced because the next time the dog's like, well, that was actually fun. Let's do it for a minute. Well, that was actually still pretty fun. So let's do it for a couple minutes. And eventually you create a dog who um, is untrainable and stubborn. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> who can, who can hang out and enjoy a half hour training session truly yeah i'm not forcing her to be there she she actually wants to be there because i set it up that way um with each training session so that she could succeed and really enjoy the process that's really ultimately how you get reliability yeah right? absolutely you get absolutely. reliability by helping the learner learn to love training learn to love working with you um, and that does not ever come through force. And, and when I say force, I don't even just mean like physical force. I mean like giving the dog no option, right? That is force. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's something that's super pertinent to a lot of like the breeds that we've mentioned in this episode, right? Is that yeah. um, they're going to make you 
an amazing trainer. I tell you what, I would not be the caliber of trainer that I am if it wasn't for the quote unquote stubborn dogs that have graced my life. <laughs> totally. Right. And you know, They're the listeners of, yeah, well, and the listeners of this podcast have heard me preach on this before, but like you have to grow, evolve and learn at the same time as your dog. It's yeah. not about like dog training is not about making dogs do things. It's about working yeah. as a team to get to the achievable goal. Yeah. Right. And I think that if you are the owner of a dog that falls on under, you know, the quote unquote stubborn um, stereotype or label, consider yourself lucky because you yeah. are going to be a better person after the fact. Yes. Yeah. Does it feel overwhelming? Sure. Is there a lot of profanity used? Yes. But... <laughs> definitely but then you you know then you get to the the metaphorical other side and you know then you get to grow and open new doors that probably wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for that dog so you know I don't want to diminish frustration on the human end right because I know how real it is but if you are frustrated with your dog seek help from a qualified trainer that's what we're here for we want to help you succeed right so that your life and your dog's life gets to be better Yeah. And at this point, that type of problem solving is why we do what we do. Our brains like to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you don't have to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I kind of would love to um, go back to a little bit about that. um, Just when it comes to breed stereotyping, talking a little bit about genetics, because I was reading this awesome article um, by about like nature versus nurture um, by uh, Carol Buchet. I'm probably totally butchered that. So, <laughs> oops, <laughs> um, I, I tried. Um, but the the gist of the article was talking about actual actually like breeding for temperament and traits and how how insanely difficult it is to know what you're going to get okay so so genetics really matter and unless you're a geneticist like just because you have a dog say you have a, a bitch who is like got the greatest temperament um she's really friendly with kids your family She's a great mother to her puppies and, and the, um, the, the sire is, um, also a really great temperament, really, really friendly. Breeding them does not at all guarantee that the puppies you get aren't going to have aggressive tendencies or, um, separation issues or whatever, um, traits we're trying to avoid. Um, and I think that's so interesting. Like, uh, basically what she was saying is that yes, dogs are the way they are because we've selected them for specific behavioral traits. Right. However, um, it behavior is so complex that it is not just nature versus nurture. Um, it is really, really hard to measure what is influencing the dog's behavior unless every single dog you raise has the exact same environment, right? Um, And the exact same interactions with different novel stimuli 
only then can you start to kind of get a picture of of what you may get if you breed that dog. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm totally unqualified to be talking about genetics, but I find it really interesting um, because as we know, behavior is a product of both nature and nurture. Both genes and environment affect behavior. Um, but you have like phenotype, genotype, environment, and any variations in all of that that all go into the dog to create um, how that dog is in the world, right? Um, and it's incredibly hard to tell the difference between the two. So we have heritability, which is like the, the fraction of variation in phenotype of a trait that is accountable for that variation in the genotype. It's like, it's like the variation and trait from animal to animal, not the expression of the trait itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so then we have phenotype, and that is simply the expression of the trait. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's like um, something that can be carried on, as far as I understand. Um, so that whether it be behavior, anatomy, um, or function, it's like the genetic and genotype is the genetic makeup of the animal. So without getting too nerdy there, basically what I'm, I'm reading from this or gathering from this is it's actually really in, incredibly challenging to, to kind of compartmentalize those and know what in the dog is actually going to transfer, right? You have to have a massive uh, group to select from and no breeder, right, is actually capable of having as many dogs as are needed to ensure that the genetics of selected dogs are carrying over. And if they did, at that point, they would probably be a puppy mill. <laughs> yeah. And it would be inhumane. But it's really, I think it's really interesting to note that as well, because we're not just talking about, um, uh, you know, that how the dog is raised. Um, we're talking about so many different things that can influence behavior, right? Um, yeah, and on an individual level, right? And like on a very individual level. So to say that all blocky-headed dogs are aggressive is so silly when you look at all of these legs, all of these branches, that go in to create what a dog is, what an individual dog is. And so, right, it's, so it's really improbable, right, yeah. that, that any one breed would be the same across the board, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think really looking at the comparison of people, you know what I mean? Like if you have siblings looking at the difference in who they are, how, how they look, how they behave, right? Yeah. And you know, there's just, there's no, sense in in following these stereotypes because it does harm to dogs and it does harm to people it really does and and then you know to circle back that being said research the breed right know that you can't turn a circle into a square right um i i know so many people who get a certain breed as a puppy because they think that the nurture aspect of raising a puppy can turn the, can override the genetics of that dog, right? So 
Um, that's a losing battle. That's a very losing <laughs> battle. And so, so it's not so simple is basically what we're saying here. Right? Yeah, it really it's, is. It's not so simple to just um, say, to make things black and white, like us human brains like to do. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and like you're mentioning, right? Like it's really important that you're doing your due diligence before you bring a breed home. Yes. Right. And there are exceptions to every rule, but it's important to know like some of these genetic predispositions that are not going to be off the table. You know what I mean? Like a Husky's desire to run and chase is non-negotiable. And yep. arguably, I think you could say that with about the vast majority of breeds. You know what I mean? I think so too. Yeah. Right? Like you can't take normal dog tendencies off the table. And and I think that that's a huge, you know, challenge with the e-collar training is that they are taking natural tendencies yeah. off the table. And yes. where, what problems are going to manifest as a result of that, right? Like, running, chasing, sniffing, eating gross stuff. Like that's dogs should absolutely be doing that, right? That's yeah. their genetics at play. So I think we need to really get our heads on straight and recognize that like expecting a dog to never do any of these quote unquote unwanted naughty things is yes. just, I mean, you're never going to get there. So just yeah. brace yourself now. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I always say that, um, Unfortunately, what we often refer to as a bad dog is a dog just really left to their own devices and they're just going to be a dog, right? Um, and our job as, as their handlers, as their, as their paw rents, right, yeah. is to, to understand, to get curious about their behavior and start to recognize what their core needs are, right? for that individual and help them satisfy those needs in a way that also does work for us. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and, and that is a beautiful challenge if you're willing to be patient and kind and compassionate and, yeah. and love the dog you have for the dog they are, um, and, and not take that away from them, but, but help them achieve those goals, um, in a way that's safe that that is uh, devoid of danger as much as possible and also you know help satisfy your own needs as well as the the human part in that relationship so and to me that's just a beautiful challenge it really is so I want to touch on one more point guys and then we'll kind of wrap it up here but obviously we want to keep our dogs safe obviously we want to keep our dogs out of harm's way but I think that there is also a risk aversion, a safety aversion that we have as people. And that can cause tension in our relationships with our dogs because we, quote unquote, don't want our dogs to do things that are normal and natural. And we can absolutely find outlets for those in safer ways. You know, safety is an illusion, guys. I just want to be honest with oh you. Oh, my God. You know? like, Tell me about right? it. Like, um, you know, and people who listen to this podcast know, like, Waylon has been in some precarious predi- predicaments. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's been quelled <laughs> by a porcupine twice, ladies and gentlemen, and he lived to tell the tale. So I'm not suggesting that you put your dogs in harm's way, but I'm suggesting that you reevaluate the way you look at quote unquote safety and really keep in mind your dog's needs and desires because if you can meet those, there's way less. L- 
likelihood of unsafe things. So, you know, just an example, a dog who is constantly chasing things. If we can teach them to call off of things and chase things in appropriate ways, there's way less likelihood that they're going to be doing it in those undesirable ways that are quote unquote more unsafe. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that that's just really important to touch on that. Like dogs are not these fragile creatures, right? Like dogs are meant to chase and run into things and eat gross stuff. Like that's, that's who they are, right? Genetically. So it'll serve us much better to take that into account and use that to our advantage instead of constantly resisting that stuff. Yep. Yep. And, you know, for those, you know, the e-caller people who say, well, it would hurt a lot more for my dog to get hit by a truck. I'm like, do you have children? (laughs) Because (laughs) children run into the middle of the street all the time. Or there's that potential, right? Do you have a teenager who just got their driver's license? Do you put a shock collar on them to make sure that they don't make poor choices? You know, do you, and it's just so silly to me. Like we just wouldn't do that. Hopefully God forbid. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's safety is an illusion. Like let's relax a little. Okay. We don't have to be, um, turning our, our dogs into robots in order to feel like they're going to be okay. Like, even if you do that, your dog may run into the middle of the street. It's just life. Like, it come to terms with it yeah exactly careful be smart yeah Yeah, exactly okay Bree so if people want to connect with you where can they find you yeah um so in the social media realms I am most active on Instagram though you can also find me on Facebook so on Instagram it's um at noble wolf and that's w-o-o-f the sound a dog makes Uh, Same on Facebook. Um, And then my website is www.noblewoof.com. Those are all great places. I do remote consults as well as in-home consults. So that is always an option if uh, you have interest in working with me. Perfect. Do so. Yeah. And guys, I'll include links to that, all that in the show notes. And, um, she also has a really great YouTube channel. So you can check that out for training videos and stuff too. And I also teach, I teach group classes at the Oregon Humane Society as well here in Portland. So you can find me there. I'm there about 30, 30 hours a week. So I do a lot of stuff. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Yes. This has been so fun. I scratched yes. that itch. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get any uh, kicked off any uh, Facebook uh, pages as a result. Yeah. So yeah, here we did it, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about us, please check us out on Instagram at a good feeling underscore in co you can also find us on facebook at a good feeling dog training as well as our website agfdogtraining.com